This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. This is Inside the Courts. A look at this month's trials, pleas, and grand jury action. Inside the Courts is presented as a courtesy of the Rutherford County Clerk's Office. Good morning, everyone. This is your District Attorney General, Jennings Jones. And today, I will be your tour guide through, the, through this episode of Inside the Courts. We begin this segment by stating that none of the defendants named in upcoming trials or hearings have been convicted, and of course, they are presumed by our law to be innocent. With that as a prelude, we will now go inside the courts. On March 16th of this year, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department were dispatched to a residence on Swanson Lane in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. In response to a 911 call where officers located the body of Fetsophone Cesarino, Mrs. Cesarino had been beaten to death in her garage and her throat had been cut. The victim's husband, Focam Cesarino, was unaccounted for. Mr. Cesarino was later found covered in blood. After conducting an interview of Mr. Cesarino, he was charged with first-degree murder. Detective Richard Presley with the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead investigator. Mr. Cesarino is represented by the Office of the Public Defender and is scheduled to appear in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County on April 10th of this year. The state will be represented by Assistant District Attorney Sarah Davis. On February the 15th of this year, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a 911 call reporting shots fired at an apartment complex on Puckett Creek in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Officers discovered the body of Miss Rebecca Stockton on the floor of her apartment. Miss Stockton had been shot multiple times. Detective Julie Cox with the Murfreesboro Police Department was assigned as the lead investigator. Miss Stockton's live-in boyfriend, Salim Hamilton, was missing. A manhunt for Mr. Hamilton was ordered, and Mr. Hamilton was located in Corbin, Kentucky. Mr. Hamilton was found to be in possession of Miss Stockton's rental car and a 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun. Miss Stockton had been shot and killed with a 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun. Mr. Hamilton was charged in Kentucky with possession of a firearm by a convicted felon and is currently in custody in Corbin, Kentucky. Mr. Hamilton has been charged with first-degree murder by the Murfreesboro Police Department and awaits extradition. On the 13th of February, 2023, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a 911 call in reference to a stabbing at a residence on Ransom Drive in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Upon entry, officers discovered the body of Mr. Philip Maddox on the floor in his bedroom. Mr. Maddox had been stabbed multiple times, and witnesses on the scene advised that Mr. Maddox's roommate, Malik Smith, had admitted to stabbing Mr. Maddox. Officers located Mr. Smith, and Mr. Smith confirmed the witness's claim. Detective David Miller of the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead investigator in this case. After a thorough search of the residence, collection of evidence, and interviewing of all witnesses, Mr. Smith was charged with first-degree murder. Mr. Smith awaits his next court date on May 31st of this year and is presently represented by the Office of the Public Defender. 
The state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On the 6th of October, 2022, officers with the Laverne Police Department were dispatched to a residence on Almondwood Place in Laverne, Tennessee, in response to a shooting that led to the death of the homeowner, Robin Taylor. Detective Tanner Noakes has been assigned as the lead investigator. Ms. Taylor's sister, Candace Davis, was on scene when officers arrived. After initially claiming an unknown subject shot her sister and ran away, Miss Davis later changed her story and claimed her sister attacked her and she shot Miss Taylor in self-defense. Upon conclusion of Detective Noakes' investigation and in light of the evidence collected on scene, it was determined that Miss Davis was not justified in shooting Miss Taylor. She was subsequently charged with second-degree murder. A preliminary hearing was held on November the 4th of last year. At that hearing, the court heard witness testimony and determined that probable cause existed to bind the matter over to a Rutherford County grand jury. The defendant is represented by counsel Thompson Kirkpatrick, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On July 6th of 2022, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to a residence on Panther Creek Road in response to a shooting. After receiving a 911 call, deputies discovered the body of Mr. Clarence Roden. Mr. Roden had been shot multiple times. Witnesses identified Mr. Jeffrey Burris as the shooter. Mr. Burris was located and found to be in possession of a firearm. Mr. Burris was then taken into custody and interviewed by Detective Kyle Norod, who has been assigned as the lead investigator in this case. Upon the conclusion of the investigation, Mr. Burris was charged with the first-degree murder of Mr. Roden. On December 8th of 2022, Mr. Burris appeared in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County and bound his case over to the grand jury. Mr. Burris is represented by a counsel, Mr. Joshua Crane, and the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On December 4th of 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department were dispatched to an apartment complex on North Rutherford Boulevard in reference to a shooting that resulted in the death of Mr. Montavis Jones. Mr. Jones was left laying in the apartment complex parking lot. Detective Chris Pate was assigned as lead investigator. After the shooting, Mr. Mikhail Boyd was located at St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital as the result of having received a gunshot wound. Video surveillance footage showed Mr. Boyd being brought to the hospital by Mr. Tevin Campbell and Mr. Paul Turner. After a lengthy investigation that included interviewing witnesses, obtaining cell phone records, social media records, and expert witness reports, Detective Pate charged Mr. Boyd, Mr. Campbell, and Mr. Turner, along with Mr. Martavius Guy, with first-degree murder. Mr. Guy's girlfriend, Ms. Tybricia Lattimore, has been charged with conspiracy to commit aggravated robbery and facilitation of attempted especially aggravated robbery. Mr. Boyd is represented by counsel, Mr. Michael Rexrote. Mr. Turner is represented by Mr. Josh Crane. Mr. Guy by Mr. Ben Powers. Ms. Lattimore is represented by Mr. Scott Saul. And Mr. Campbell is represented by Ms. Heather Parker. The state will be represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. In December of 22, a Rutherford County grand jury indicted the defendants for the charged offenses. They will next appear before a circuit court judge on June 29th of this year. On April 24th of 2021, officers on patrol heard shots fired and responded to 1621 Middle Tennessee Boulevard. 
Officers found Mr. Shakur Ali, who had been shot and later died from his injuries. Apollo Cantrell was identified as the shooter and fled the state. Detective Richard Presley of the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead investigator in this case. Through cooperation with the state of Iowa, Mr. Cantrell has been apprehended. He is presently incarcerated at the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center on charges of second-degree murder in possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He is represented by counsel Mr. Will Fraley. A preliminary hearing was held on February the 7th of last year, and the General Sessions Court found probable cause to bind the matter over to the Rutherford County Grand Jury. The defendant will next appear before a circuit court judge on May 22nd of this year. On October 24th of 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting that occurred at the intersection of North Tennessee Boulevard and Stonewall Boulevard. Officers discovered the body of Mr. Blake Bolton, who had been the victim of two gunshot wounds. Albert Miles with the Murfreesboro Police Department was assigned as the lead detective in this case. Mr. Gilliam was charged with the first-degree murder of Mr. Bolton. A Rutherford County grand jury indicted Mr. Gilliam with first-degree murder, especially aggravated robbery, burglary to an automobile, possession of meth with the intent to distribute, and employment of a weapon during the commission of a dangerous felony. Mr. Gilliam is represented by counsel Mr. Brennan Foy, while the state is represented by Mr. Trevor Lynch. The next scheduled court date in this case is May 19th of this year. On September the 8th, 2019, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting on Journey Drive. Officers discovered Marquis Turner, who had been shot in the sidewalk after leaving an event at the Elks Lodge. Mr. Turner died from his injuries. Detective Cody Thomas of the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead detective in this case and developed Khalil Smith as a suspect. Upon conclusion of his investigation, Mr. Smith was charged with second-degree murder and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Khalil Smith is presently incarcerated at the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center. In August, a Rutherford County grand jury indicted Mr. Smith for second-degree murder, possession of a weapon by a convicted felon, and employing a firearm during the commission of a dangerous felony. Mr. Smith's next court date is September the 14th of this year in the Circuit Court of Rutherford County. Mr. Smith is represented by Mr. Stephen Perkins, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On May 16, 2017, the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to reports of multiple gunshots in the area of Gateway Apartments. Witnesses reported seeing a black male fleeing the area on foot. Additionally, a gunshot victim, Kendrick Love, was located in front of one of the apartment buildings. Mr. Love later died from the injuries he sustained. Witnesses on scene established that the victim went to meet an individual for the purposes of selling marijuana. Additional witnesses identified the individual as Tyshawn Patterson, who matched the description of the male seen running on foot just after the shooting. Detective Doug Arrington with the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead detective in this case. At the conclusion of the investigation, it was determined that Mr. Patterson went to the alleged marijuana deal armed with a firearm and with the intent to rob the victim. Mr. Patterson has been charged with first-degree murder and attempted aggravated robbery. A trial was held on February the 22nd through the 25th of last year, and Mr. Patterson was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. 
On January 30th of this year, Mr. Patterson was sentenced to 25 years for second-degree murder, 12 years for robbery, four years for facilitation to aggravated robbery, and two years for conspiracy to facilitation to aggravated robbery. Since Mr. Patterson was a juvenile at the time he committed these crimes, he will be eligible for parole after service of between 25 and 36 years. A motion for new trial has been filed by the defense and is scheduled to be heard on April the 13th of this year. And that will conclude today's look inside the courts. We all owe three debts. First, to each other, to help make our community safer. Second, to our family, especially our children, to set a good example of what a good citizen does to help the community. And finally, we owe a debt to the seemingly forgotten victims of homicide, a debt that can only be paid with truth and justice. Every homicide, every rape, every robbery affects the entire community. People who are victims of these crimes need closure. The people who committed these crimes must be held accountable. Law enforcement needs the community's help in seeking justice. Please listen as we review an unsolved mystery in this month's Cold Case Profile. It was February the 10th, 2014, that Murfreesboro police officers responded to an apartment complex at 1306 Bradyville Pike in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The nature of the call was to investigate an unattended death. When the police arrived, the apartment complex maintenance workers informed the officers that they had discovered the lifeless body of a young man inside of a bedroom of one of the apartments. There were indications that the apartment may have been burglarized. The front door appeared to have been forced open. The deceased was identified as Mikhail Shakur. Later, an autopsy was performed. The medical examiner determined that the cause of death was a gunshot wound and that the manner of death was homicide. After 16 months of investigation and despite the best efforts of law enforcement, the case remains unsolved. The killer or killers of Mikhail Shakur remain at large. Law enforcement is asking for your assistance. Here in the WGNS studios to ask for your help is Detective Tommy Massey of the Murfreesboro Police Department. Detective Massey is the lead detective assigned to investigate the murder of Mikhail Shakur. Detective Massey, I'm always very careful when releasing information on pending investigations, so I always leave the details up to the investigators. But are there any more details you can share with the audience at this time? Obviously, the case remains unsolved at this point, and there are some persons of interest in the case. We're still needing some help from some people in the community that might help us tie some of the leads that we have been able to develop together uh, so that we might be able to go forward and pursue some charges in this case. Mr. Shakur was not a resident at that apartment complex, so we believe there is a possibility that he could have been a person that just happened to be in the right place at the wrong time. Obviously, there were people at the time, the apartment complex then was referred to as Stones River 
Headquarters apartment has since been renamed to Altitude Apartments. So one of the things we'd like to see is if anyone who resided at that apartment complex then that might have seen anything around the early morning hours of February the 10th that might seem insignificant to them, they might want to come forward because when you work these type cases, like I always say, it's like working a jigsaw puzzle and sometimes you just need one tiny piece to maybe tie it all together. Can you tell us why you believe that this case can be solved? We have physical evidence, obviously, and there are several people involved in the case, which usually means that someone's going to talk. It's very hard for anyone to keep a secret, especially if there's more people involved. So we know that there's probably people talking that may have heard some things in the case. We've conducted numerous witness interviews, and we're very hopeful that with just a few pieces from some of the right people that we could tie it all together. So I believe the case can be solved with just a little assistance from the community. If anyone has information regarding who killed Mikhail Shakur, who should they contact and what are the phone numbers? If they wish to remain anonymous, they can always reach out to the Crime Stoppers reward hotline. There would obviously be a reward available if the information that they provide would lead us to an arrest and prosecution. If they feel comfortable enough to come forward to the police department, they're always encouraged. They can call our dispatch number, which is 615-893-1311, or they can contact the detective division at 615-893-2717 and forward that information on to myself or any other members of the uh, Violent Crimes Unit. Detective Massey, thank you for bringing this case to the public's attention. We appreciate your efforts and wish you success in bringing Shakir McCure's killer to justice. This is Chip Walters, and you're listening to Rutherford County's Blue yeah, Raider Station. Yes, we got them. MTSU Sports on WGNS AM presented on today's show is solely for informational benefit and not intended to be legal advice. You should always consult an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Hi, this is Peter Demas. One of the things that we've done years ago is we've been able to do our orders like our pastas and many other items that we used to be able to put them in large pans. And now we have a catering team that will even deliver it to your home. We can drop it off for you, set it up, or they can come in and pick it up. Look up our catering menu on www.demasrestaurants.com. This is Peter Demas at Demas's Restaurant, 1115 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. If I could talk to the animals. Hi, this is Amanda from Animal City, inviting your family to come in and do business with my family. As the weather gets worse and we spend more time indoors, give your pets additional enrichment. Here at Animal City, we carry a variety of toys and entertainment for pets of most kinds. When you stop in to see us at Animal City, make sure to explore all two stories of our wonderful pets and pet supplies. Animal City is at 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. My name is J. Paul Newman. On our Call to Conviction segment, we'll review a case that devastated our community. It is the 2001 murder of Rutherford County resident Kevin Barrett. Also on today's broadcast, in our Look at the Law segment, General Weitzel has a special guest, Murfreesboro attorney Thomas Parkinson. Thomas Parkinson represented one of the defendants charged with the murder of Kevin Barrett and he will discuss the responsibilities and motivations 
of representing a defendant in a high-profile murder case. From call to conviction, time now for a look back at one of the more intriguing and important cases for this community. From the crime, the investigation, to the prosecution. Our case study today takes us back to July 25th, 2011. Our location is 6811 Burks Hollow Road in Rutherford County, Tennessee. It is the home of Kevin Barrett. Kevin Barrett worked for the Board of Education, and as time allowed, he worked his farm. Prior to July 25th, the Barrett home had been broken into. On June 18th, July the 6th, and July the 24th, the home had been burglarized. Several items had been taken, including Kevin Barrett's rifle. On July the 25th, Kevin Barrett called the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office to report his most recent burglary, one that had occurred the night before. As the Sheriff's Department was writing the report, two men were hiding in the woods, watching the police and waiting for them to leave. After finishing the report, the deputy did leave, and Kevin Barrett left on his tractor. Also that morning, Regina Flowers, who was romantically involved with Kevin Barrett, decided to go to Barrett's home. When she arrived, Kevin Barrett was out in the fields. Regina Flowers walks inside the house. She was only there a short time when the door suddenly flew open and two men wearing black hoods over their faces rushed inside. The men were armed with a rifle. They struggled with Regina Flowers. She was thrown to the floor. She was kicked. She was choked. Her hands and feet were tied. She was bleeding from the head. When she began to cry, they put tape over her mouth. The men searched the home. After completing the search, the two men did not leave. They were waiting for Kevin Barrett to return home. Regina Flowers had been helped for over an hour when Kevin Barrett did return. As Kevin opened the kitchen door, one of the two men fired a shot. It struck Kevin Barrett in the hand. Barrett tries to get away, and as he is running outside, a second shot is fired, striking Barrett in the shoulder. He falls in the driveway. A third shot is fired, a shot to the head of Kevin Barrett. The two men then decide it is time to flee. They steal Kevin Barrett's Chevy Silverado and Regina Flowers' Dodge Durango. Regina Flowers quickly unties herself and goes outside. There, she finds the lifeless body of 45-year-old Kevin Barrett. She calls 911. The call you are about to hear is the call Regina Flowers made to the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office. Before we play the call, a word of warning. Some listeners may find the call disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. 911 emergency. Oh, then. 6811, um, um, Burton Hall Road. He's been robbed before and the police came and these guys, they were just, uh, and they shot him. He's dead. All right, ma'am. What road are you on? 
His address is 6811 Birch Hollow Road. Birch Hollow Road. <laughs> Okay, ma'am, are you on the Rutherford County side of Burks Hollow? Yeah, oh my God. Okay, what is your name? Okay, Regina Flowers. They they took my Durango. It's a red Durango. They took his uh, 2000. Um, they took his 2000 uh, Chevrolet 1500 silver. Oh my God, he's Regina Flowers' call brought help quickly. Sheriff's deputies locate the stolen vehicles and give chase. Although the two suspects initially evade the deputies, they are later arrested and taken into custody. The two men are 21-year-old Aaron Walker, who lived on Bradable Pike, and 20-year-old John Lamondola, who lived on Old Las Casas Highway. After being advised of their rights, each provides statements to the detectives. From their statements, the proof showed that Aaron Walker was the person who fired the three shots that killed Kevin Barrett. When we return, we will tell you about the case of the state of Tennessee versus Aaron Walker and John Lamondola. On July the 3rd, 2013, Aaron Walker and John Lamondola were indicted by the Rutherford County Grand Jury for the murder and robbery of Kevin Barrett and the kidnapping and robbery of Regina Flowers. The case was assigned to the court of Judge David Bragg. Aaron Walker was represented by Rutherford County Attorney Ryan Fries, and John Lamondola was represented by Rutherford County Attorney Thomas Parkinson. The prosecution team consisted of District Attorney General William C. Weitzel, Jr. and Assistant District Attorney J. Paul Newman. John Lamondola decided he wanted to negotiate a settlement. He agreed to testify truthfully in the trial of his co-defendant, Aaron Walker. There was no agreement as to what he would receive in exchange for his testimony. Trial of the State of Tennessee versus Aaron Walker was scheduled to begin on August the 11th, 2014. As the trial neared, Aaron Walker decided that he did not want to go to trial. On July the 30th, 2014, Aaron Walker entered four pleas of guilty. He pled guilty to conspiracy and received a three-year sentence. He also pled guilty to aggravated robbery and especially aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced to 15 years for each of those crimes and he pled guilty to the first-degree murder of Kevin Barrett and received a sentence of life in prison. On October the 24th, 2014, John Lamondola entered his pleas of guilty to the following charges. On the charge of conspiracy, Lamondola received a six-year sentence, and on the charge of especially aggravated kidnapping, Lamondola received a 20-year sentence. With us today is Rutherford County Sheriff's Detective Steve Kohler. 
Detective Kohler was instrumental in the arrest, prosecution, and conviction of Aaron Walker and John Lamondola. We appreciate you taking the time to be here today, and we recognize that solving cases like this is always a team effort. Tell us some of the names of some of the people that were involved in this investigation. There were so many people involved in this, from our unit to our patrol officers to Murfreesboro patrol officers. Detective Gregory and I were what we would call the case agents on this. But situation like this, our whole unit comes together to act as a well-oiled machine. It's really an all-hands-on-deck type affair. We know that Kevin Barrett's home had been previously broken into on other occasions. What can you tell us about those burglaries? In one of the burglaries, it was very interesting that they, I think you mentioned earlier, they took the rifle that was actually used to kill Mr. Barrett. And then another interesting point is that after the last burglary, the officer was out there doing the report while these guys were in the woods watching the whole thing armed with a rifle. And then once the officers left, that's when they they made their move and went in the house. Did you ever determine how these two people were able to get to the location of the crime? And why did they take the vehicles that were involved that belonged to the two victims? I'm not real sure why they took the vehicles. They drove Walker's truck to the crime, and they parked it behind a church nearby. And the only thing I could imagine is that they panicked, and they they took these vehicles just to get out of there really quickly, leaving their truck behind. And it appears that the response to this location was extraordinary. You actually saw one of the suspects fleeing in a vehicle. Tell us about that. I did. I was a second shift CID detective at the time, and along with Bryant Gregory and some of the other guys, and and we actually heard the call go out on the radio, and they gave a very good description, thanks to Miss Flowers, of the cars. So I called my partner Gregory, and, and we started that way. Well, traffic was really thick at the time. It was late in the evening, and so I had my blue lights on in my unmarked car to get through traffic and get out to the crime scene quicker. And as I was headed out there at Bradyville and Rutherford at that intersection, I actually passed Walker and Lamondola. And Walker and I, we, we locked eyes for a minute, and it was kind of like time stands still. You know, we just kind of both looked at each other, and he knew that I was a cop, and He knew that he was going to try to get away, and I turned around, and and the chase was on. Were you able to apprehend him at that time, or was there a reason why the chase was called off? I did not apprehend him at that time. Actually, we went through a subdivision, and again, it was late afternoon in the summer. There was kids out everywhere. He was driving very fast and, in my opinion, too dangerous. And at the time, we still didn't actually know what kind of crime had occurred. All we had was the caller's information, so I terminated the pursuit based on the surroundings and the the people in the area. Later on, the city picked them up and found the vehicles behind an apartment complex. We haven't talked a whole lot about the victims. Tell us, first of all, about the victim who was murdered, Mr. Kevin Barrett. Mr. Barrett seemed to be a very likable guy. You know, he worked for the school board as a maintenance worker. He was a part-time, maybe you could say full-time farmer as well. Uh, he seemed to be a, a really hard-working, good man. What can you tell us about Regina Flowers? She also worked for the schools. I believe she worked in the cafeteria at one of the schools. She is a very brave and tough-minded person. I know that she fully cooperated throughout this investigation. How important was it for you to have her cooperation, and how well did she handle herself in a dangerous situation? 
I think she handled herself very well. Uh, that was a very, very dangerous situation for her, and, and I think that it's, it's amazing that she's still alive. She had to relive this incident over and over and over again when we would interview her and talk to her and ask for details of this incident. So it was really tough for her, but she did a good job. Detective Keller, we want to thank you and other members of the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department for the excellent job you did in bringing Aaron Walker and John Lamondoa to justice. When we return, Bill Whitesell will tell us more about the Kevin Barrett murder as he talks with our special guest, Attorney Thomas Parkinson, as we ask them both, what's the law? I'm Ken Coleman. Join me here on News Radio WGNS weekdays live at noon as we answer your questions about your calling, passion, and talent to maximize your potential. Good morning. Traffic still moving right now and coming out of Mount Juliet. They are down through Wilson County on I-40, headed towards Hermitage. It's been extremely quiet as far as accidents. Traffic volume been very light. Normally, there'd be some traffic over here right now on 65 southbound at Trinity Lane, but it's just moving right along down through there at the moment. Snapdragon Hemp, serving up lab-tested top-shelf hemp products, edibles, flowers, concentrates. Order online at snapdragon420.com. I'm Commander Chuck. You're on time traffic. Hi, this is Gator with Tire World Off-Road. We're your local rough country dealer. So when you're ready to add some character to your rig, ask for Gator at Tire World Off-Road on Memorial Boulevard. This is Sean Brown at Tire World on Broad Street. Online at tireworld.us. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. I am very pleased with Adam's Place. All the people are very kind. I've got everything I need, and the caregivers come in and say, what can I do for you, or do you need anything? We're talking with Betty Atterbury. Adams Place, one of the best places in Rutherford County. I'm Terry Deal. Call me for more information about Adams Place, 1927 Memorial Boulevard, across from Walmart. I can't wait for what's next. Even with higher stroke risk due to atrial fibrillation, in a regular heartbeat not caused by a heart valve problem. Eliquis, the Pixaban tablets, reduces stroke risk. It's the number one cardiologist prescribed blood thinner. Don't stop taking prescription Eliquis without talking to your doctor as this may increase your risk of stroke. Eliquis can cause serious and in rare cases fatal bleeding. Don't take Eliquis if you have an artificial heart valve, abnormal bleeding, or have antiphospholipid syndrome. While taking, you may bruise more easily or take longer for bleeding to stop. A spinal injection while on Eliquis increases risk of blood clots, which may cause paralysis, the inability to move. Get medical help right away for unexpected bleeding or unusual bruising, or if you have tingling, numbness, or muscle weakness. It may increase your bleeding risk if you take medicines such as aspirin products, NSAIDs, SSRIs, SNRIs, and blood thinners. Tell your doctor about all planned medical or dental procedures. Learn more at Eliquis.com or call 1-855-ELIQUIS. What's the law? Time now for an examination of the laws of Tennessee. This is not intended to be legal advice and is being presented solely for the informational benefit of our listening audience. 
You should always consult with an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. I want to welcome to the show Thomas Parkinson. We know that you represented John Lamondola. He was charged with murder, especially aggravated kidnapping, robbery, and conspiracy. And as it turned out, Mr. Lamondola entered into an agreement to testify on behalf of the state. First, I want to take you back to the six years that you were a prosecutor and ask you, how is it that there are cases where the state agrees with one of the co-defendants to testify? Why is that sometimes necessary? As a prosecutor, one of the things that you're looking for when there are co-defendants in a case is you want to make sure that you, you're able to, to meet the elements of the offense on each defendant. And whenever a prosecutor looks at case, and this is going back to my time as a prosecutor, Sometimes one person has more exposure than another person. And the way to best get a case to trial or a best way maybe to settle that case is to talk to the co-defendant and see if there's an opportunity that they could give information that could lead to the prosecution of the other person. And what the DA will do at certain times is they'll ask them to make a proffer or to basically make a statement. I want to flip now and talk to you as the defense attorney for John Lamondola in this case. And when you were approached on behalf of your client initially about his testifying because the state thought that he might have information that would be useful, tell us how you approach your client, what you discuss, not specifically in this case, but in general, and what the goal is. Certainly. One of the most important things you need to do as a defense attorney is to obviously go over what the charges are against your client and the evidence against your client. And specifically with Mr. Lamondola, when you look at the charges that, that he was facing, before we ever talked about any type of proffer or, or help to the state or anything that he wanted to do personally because he felt a certain way about the case, when he looked at what the charges were, the multiple felonies and ultimately felonies that would carry life in prison, and you talk about the proof on that case, it's an easier segue into, okay, is there a situation that you would be comfortable with discussing with the state? to maybe help your case. Uh, and in this case with Mr. Lamondola, and this was just one of the factors, when he's looking at life in prison and he's a 20-year-old man, it does open up a discussion, certainly, trying to give some information. Now, I will say on behalf of Mr. Lamondola as well, though, that much of his information that he gave in this particular case was also driven by the fact that this was an awful incident. He did want to do the right thing. If I could, we've still got Detective Kohler here. And Detective Kohler, in your investigation, we know that Mr. Barrett, the deceased, his mother and stepfather were going through a divorce. And I believe Mr. Walker, the other defendant in the case, had either worked for him or his parents rented a home. But what was the connection that brought Mr. Walker into contact with Mr. Barrett? In other words, how would he know where he lived in this kind of stuff? Right. Well, like you said, his father actually rented a home from this man, and Aaron also worked for him kind of as a farmhand, mending fences and things like that. So he was very familiar with the situation and the divorce and things like that. And early on, we wondered what his motive or motivation would be to initially burglarize Kevin Barrett's home. And we think that probably there was discussions uh, as a result of what was going on that led him to believe that Mr. Barrett may have uh, some money, maybe was looking after some of his mother's property and, and assets and whatnot. Is that an accurate statement? 
I think so, yes. And we could not find any connection between Mr. Lamondola and Mr. Barrett other than through Walker. Right. And, Thomas, that's the reason that we chose Mr. Lamondola because, and Steve, you correct me if I'm wrong, but we thought that Walker was the engineer, uh, the architect of the whole crime spree that involved Kevin Barrett. Is that an accurate statement? It is. And he was the one that more or less encouraged Mr. Lamadola to participate by promising him stuff. And did Mr. Lamadola have a drug habit at that time? He did. Um, he had a, a very bad pill problem. And part of his reasons or his explanation for some of the things he did and why he was with Mr. Walker was so that they could fund their habits. It's an awful situation. You mentioned that in another case when you were prosecuting where a co-defendant testified and the defendant was found not guilty, that the jury said they didn't believe the co-defendant. So that's one of the risks. And explain, I know from being on both sides, we encourage these witnesses, these co-defendants, to tell the truth. And tell us to the lengths, what lengths you went to in discussing with him to make sure when he talked with the prosecutors that he was truthful. Well, in representing an individual, you also have to explain to them what risk they have. And, and anytime you sit down as a defense attorney, now we're segueing into the defense side, mm -hmm. speaking with the prosecutor, you have to explain this is very risky because let's say that you give them information and they say they want to use that information. Well, it might not be able to be used specifically against you at a trial, but if you were to get up there and testify and say something different, then they could impeach your testimony with that information. You also got to understand that the information you use, although it specifically may not be able to be used against your trial, it could lead to additional information that they could use to charge you with additional offenses. And the third thing that's important about giving a statement to the prosecutor, in my opinion, is that they get to see your theory of the case. They get to see what kind of witness you would be. They get to see whether or not they really think you're going to be somebody that could help them. And in Mr. Lamondola's case, we met several times with you and Mr. Newman, and I think we were heading down that path where we didn't know whether he was telling the whole truth. And so with Mr. Lamondola, what I tried to do was stress to him the importance of putting it on the table and giving all the information that you can. If you're in and you want to do this, you got to be all in. You don't need to pick and choose the information that you're trying to provide the prosecutors. And part of me being a former prosecutor and working with you guys, as I said, I know these individuals and they are excellent prosecutors and they can tell when you're not given the full information, and it's not on a hunch. It's based upon what they know in the case. So based upon all that information, I think Mr. Lamondola decided he was going to go all in with what he provided to the state. Detective Culler, you know, as we went through this process involving John Lamondola, we would meet with him, and after the meeting, we'd sit there, do you think he's telling the truth? What do we have that would contradict him or support him? And we had many discussions along those lines. And one of the things we did was we took him out to the Barrett residence and had him walk through what happened. And then we looked at the physical evidence to see if the facts, as he was reporting them, were supported by the physical evidence at the crime scene, where the bullet holes were, where blood would be, this sort of thing. And ultimately, we decided that he would be a useful witness. You know, Thomas, I remember this was an open-ended deal. There were no guarantees other than he would receive consideration if he told the truth. So there was a certain amount of trust that we had to have in him, but also you had to have as his lawyer in the state. And talk about that a minute. 
that's very true because sometimes with a proffer or a statement, you do receive some consideration on the front end. We never received any offer. It was just that if you do the right thing and tell us what you know about this, we will absolutely consider something different than what you're charged with, which in the end, the state lived up to their end of the bargain, and he knew that. And I had to stress that to him, and that it was hard for him to grasp that because in his mind, he's given everything he has in this case, any potential defenses, anything that could potentially help him at a trial, but he did that. And one of the things that we did that I mentioned to him about this was one of the reasons the state will not do this is they won't give you an offer sometimes is because if they go ahead and give you an offer and then you get on the stand at a trial and the defense attorney gets up there that's trying to show that there's some motive for you to lie, the first question they'll ask is, but you're receiving a 10-year sentence. Isn't that true? Well, certainly it is. Well, and that's why you're saying this information. And what he had to understand, and he did, was that the state was smarter than that and they weren't going to put themselves in that type of position in this case. This was a difficult case. I know had to deal with Mr. Barrett's mother who was grief-stricken and also the young lady that was beaten and tied up and convinced him this was the right thing to do. And ultimately, I think it worked out for the state and also for your client. As we end the program today, we want to thank our guest, Detective Steve Kohler of the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department and Murfreesboro Attorney Thomas Parkinson. We leave by saying, a safe community is the responsibility of each and every one of us. This is Paul Newman bidding all of you a safe and blessed day.